and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 11th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story, Driven by Impact. For Unity Point Health's new president and CEO, it's all about making a difference. Clay Holderman, president and CEO, Unity Point Health. This story by Joe Gardias. Clay Holderman began his duties as president and CEO of Unity Point Health in mid-February, joining the organization after working for the largest health system in New Mexico. Most recently, he was executive vice president and chief operating officer of Presbyterian Healthcare Services in Albuquerque. With more than 30,000 team members, Unity Point Health has annual revenues of $4.4 billion with providers and services in hospitals, clinics, and at-home settings across Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Holderman began his career as a physician recruiter and has more than two decades of experience in investor-owned and not-for-profit healthcare leadership. Last year, he completed a term as chair for Make-A-Wish New Mexico and also chaired the local United Way's Alexis de Tocqueville Society campaign. He and his wife love to cycle and recently discovered the inviting outdoor deck of Confluence Brewing Company in Des Moines. He has already driven throughout Iowa as part of a trek to visit all nine of Unity Point Health's affiliate regions. I love that Dubuque to Cedar Rapids corridor, and I love the rivers. The river cities and river overlooks are just fantastic, Holderman said. Coming from the desert, that's something I've never seen. Question. Are you getting settled in, or are you and your family still between here and New Mexico? Holderman. We're in the process of empty nesting. My youngest is graduating high school right now in Mexico, in New Mexico and getting ready to go off to college. And so my wife and I are back and forth until she graduates. I rented a place here near Jordan Creek Mall and I'm actually under contract for a house near Quail Park. So I'm starting to set roots. But my wife is still back and forth until my daughter gets launched. Is the housing market as crazy in Albuquerque as it is here? It absolutely is for houses. The houses here, everything was going off the market in about two days. So I made a full price offer on a house after only seeing it for about 15 minutes. In New Mexico, we're going to move my mother-in-law to our home and hang on to it. I have two children, one in Texas and one in California, and so we'll probably celebrate major holidays around my mother-in-law with our kids and in the New Mexico home. I saw from your LinkedIn profile that you began your career as a physician recruiter. Tell me about that and how your career in healthcare administration got started. I actually was going to be a Methodist minister, or that's what I thought I was going to be when I went to college. So I came out with an English major. At some point, I decided I never wanted to be on the payroll of a church, but I still had a lot of the mission inside of me. Being a physician recruiter was something that I could do with a liberal arts degree, but it sparked in me a passion for really impacting communities. I found out that the smaller the community, the bigger the difference it made when you placed the right physician there. And it wasn't just a difference in healthcare, 
It was a difference in the schools and a difference in philanthropy and a difference in culture, and it was amazing. I kind of got addicted to that feeling that I could make, that I could impact a community even though I wasn't a clinician. Finally, one of my clients had quite a large list of physicians to fill, so he said, why don't you just move here and I'll pay for your master's degree and give you a residency in hospital administration. And so I moved to Somerset, Kentucky. Over the course of five years, I recruited 51 physicians and became his associate administrator. I ultimately launched with the same company to my first chief executive officer role at a small hospital in Kentucky. What motivates you most as a healthcare leader? I am very driven by impact. It's the same thing from when I told you when I started as a recruiter that I was amazed that my efforts could change a community for a generation. When you're in either a single hospital or health system, you're often the largest employer in the community and you're impacting people from every walk of life, every cultural background, every ethnic background, every socioeconomic background. You're responsible for a whole microeconomy in a hospital environment or in the health system environment. And so you impact people personally as a mentor in building careers and opportunities and development for people. And then you impact people at their most vulnerable moments, during their toughest times and during their most joyous times. So I just love being able to make an impact. Obviously, the pandemic has been transformational for health systems. What are some of the biggest lessons that you're taking away from the past year in New Mexico and then transitioning to Unity Point Health? New Mexico is really not that different. Well, the weather's very different. I will give you that. But New Mexico has got about 2 million people and is larger in area than Iowa. We both deal with issues of rural and frontier care, and we both deal with different socioeconomic issues. New Mexico has an added burden of about 23 sovereign Indian pueblos, or sovereign nations, in our borders. But we had a pretty similar experience as Presby at Presbyterian as to what Unity Point has here in Iowa. I think one of the things we learned was to be a community, regardless of what jersey we're wearing. In New Mexico, that was Presbyterian and the university and the for-profit system. Here, it's Unity Point and Mercy One working together often. So we learned that we can work across brands for the good of our communities, and I've seen it here at Unity Point. I watched in Dubuque where all of these seeming competitors were coming together with the county to staff vaccine clinics and that's kind of a beautiful thing. We learned we could be a lot more agile than we ever thought. Healthcare is traditionally very bureaucratic and very slow to change. And in COVID, we sent tens of thousands of people to work from home in a two to three day span. We changed all of our clinics from face-to-face -to, -face to virtual care. Whereas we'd always been 5-7% to 7 virtual, all of a sudden we were 70-80% and 80 virtual. And so we figured out we could be a lot more agile than we could when, than we ever thought we could. Then finally we became a lot more innovative than we thought we could. We changed care delivery models. 
we took care to the home that we had never taken before. We monitored people in ways we've never done before. Even with our therapeutics, we developed drugs more quickly than we ever had. We developed ventilators and isolation units and negative pressure units on a dime. So those are some of the things that I take away from it. What do you think will be some of the longest-lasting effects or most significant shifts for Unity Point Health because of the pandemic? Well, for direct caregivers, I think that the way the public views them will never be the same. I think this healthcare heroes sentiment was deep and real, and they recognized that while much of the nation went home and stayed safe, they didn't. They went into COVID units and they cared for people, and they day to day worried about what they might be carrying into their own homes, and yet they came back the next day to provide care. So I think that connection to purpose will forever transform how people think of our workforce. We've seen an increase in people applying for medical school now, and I hope it increases people coming into all health careers. For our workforce, whether it's human resources or analytics or accounting or payroll, we've learned to do that support work remotely, and we may see as much as 60 to 80% of that workforce remain remote. For that segment of our workforce, that may be permanent. And then for our clinics and our health plans and our accountable care organizations, we've just learned new ways of delivering care that are wrapped around the patient. So I think the days of calling someone in to take time off work to discuss a test result, that'll be done over FaceTime. I think there's so many things we can do so much more conveniently around our patients and members and so much more effectively, frankly. Given the federal assistance that has come during the pandemic, what's your feeling about the availability of funding to address healthcare equity such as more equal access to health via telehealth technology. During 2020, CARES Act funding was a lifesaver, and I would say it actually was adequate. It did make a difference. And our governments were incredibly responsive. They'd put a program in quickly, we'd give feedback, they'd make changes. In 2021, there has been some sense that that's over, and it's not over. Our Peoria region right now has a pretty major surge, and we still have much higher costs for supplies and PPE. We've seen a degradation in our payer mix, and we've not seen volumes return in some areas, like emergency departments and inpatient surgery. And so 2021 has been very difficult. I would tell you there's not adequate funding in regard to your larger question about people in more remote rural areas or people with transportation difficulties or in having access to broadband. There have been great efforts in Iowa to increase the infrastructure, but we're not there yet. We've got to get to universal broadband because all of our education, our work habits, and healthcare delivery now depend on it. What other issues are top of mind as you look ahead to your first year at Unity Point Health? The number one priority as I came in has been helping our entire workforce to recover. As I mentioned earlier, the fear for the last year that they didn't know what they were carrying home. 
In the last couple of months, as they received their full vaccinations, there was a feeling of security that came from that. But we also moved from being in the middle of a crisis to being post-crisis. And you recognize the burden you've been carrying that you hadn't even really dealt with or allowed yourself to feel. So we're seeing some post-traumatic stress syndrome and chronic stress syndrome and looking at burnout. Second, we are really having to adjust our care model quickly. I don't think that these volume changes in demand in our emergency departments are temporary. I think people have found new ways to receive care and we've got to meet them where they are as well. Consumerism is definitely on the rise. What kind of changes could this mean for Unity Point Health's facilities footprint? People may drive by and our most prominent features they see are usually our hospitals. But we are so much more than a collection of hospitals. We touch 1.2 million unique patients every year, whether we're touching them in a hospital, in one of our clinics, or in home care. Our ACO, Accountable Care Organization, which has about 430,000 members in our value-based arrangements, has achieved some of the highest shared savings in the nation. And so you've seen us starting to change our footprint already. You've seen our Unity Point Clinic Express units popping up to provide more retail-like in and out quick care. You've seen our urgent care clinics around. You've seen our emergency cares. You may have been on our websites and seen not only our video visits and telehealth, but also now we offer asynchronous virtual care where you can fill out an online questionnaire form and in under 15 minutes have a provider review, diagnose, and a prescription if needed and have it waiting for you at Hy-Vee. So does the trend toward changing care models foretell a lot of changes to our facilities? Over time, yes, but we're going to be planful about that. You'll see a lot more deployment in our at-home and our digital conveniences and our express options. And you'll see our hospitals shift to even higher technology, more complex care. We recently had our commercial real estate forum and there was a video presentation about retail self-service kiosks that will be emerging for returning items. Can we expect much higher tech healthcare lobbies? You know, people may be surprised to learn Unity Point is one of the largest health innovation incubators in the nation. We have investments right now in 10 different companies, eight of whom we have commercial contracts with today on how to change healthcare delivery in ways like you're describing. And it's pretty exciting. DocStation is one of our favorite ones. It transforms pharmacists into primary care providers and allows them to have full access to a medical record and take care of patient gaps in care without making them go back to a doctor's office. We were the founding investor in that. Tell me about your civic involvement in New Mexico and what areas of interest do you bring with you? In New Mexico, I just finished my term as chair for Make-A-Wish New Mexico, and that is a very important organization to me. We lost a child when he was 17 to cancer. He was a wish child, 
and I watched how it changed his outlook and his experience, and so that's a phenomenal organization. I also chaired our United Way's Alexis de Tocqueville Society campaign, which is a large giving campaign, and we have the same in the United Way of Central Iowa. In fact, the Albuquerque and Central Iowa United Ways have both been awarded for very similar performance, the size of their de Tocqueville campaigns. What's the most important career advice you've ever gotten? Really, it's the importance of serving. If you really are committed to something greater than just a paycheck and care about the difference you're making, the impact you're having, then the paycheck will come. Promotions will come. So whether it's serving through helping develop others or serving through something altruistic like being a healthcare provider or just the privilege of serving, if you're motivated by that, then everything else will work out. Anything else we should know? I don't want to miss the opportunity to share with you some of my favorite things about Unity Point. We call it our brand promise. This idea of helping people know how much they matter in this world is probably one of the main reasons that I chose to come here. I know most people come to Iowa for the weather, but I was compelled by the way people connect that brand promise into our values here. It's probably one of the strongest cultures I've seen in healthcare. I've got to tell you, from the inside, it's real, and people are really, really committed to it. I met a group of people here called our Cultural Advisory Committee, and it's about 38 people from across our three-state region that come together, and they are just brand-slash-culture warriors. And it is unbelievable to me how deeply people feel that responsibility to let everyone who comes to our doors know how much they matter. Clay Holderman at a glance. Hometown, Odessa, Texas. Family, he and his wife Shauna have three children in college and postgraduate studies. Education, Master of Business Administration from Colorado State University, undergraduate degree from Texas A&M University. He completed a fellowship in health system leadership from the Health Management Academy's GE Fellows Program. Age 48, contact clay.holderman at unitypoint.org. Now turning to the insider notebook, bits and bites of the finer side of Iowa business. Facelift planned for Westtown Shopping Center in West Des Moines. A portion of the makeover is already underway by Kathy A. Bolton. Plans are underway to refresh the exterior of an aging West Des Moines strip center that is visible from the interstate and a heavily traveled street. The Westtown Shopping Center, owned by Kansas City, Missouri-based Block Real Estate Services, was constructed in 1972, and since then few improvements have been made to the structure's exterior, Scott Lipovac, a member of the ownership group, said during a recent meeting with city officials. We're really excited about the plan to really revitalize the center and give it new life, Lipovac said. Plans include eliminating the sloped green metal roofs that form canopies over tenants' entryways, and replacing them with flattened, 
towers that include the names of stores, he said. What we want to do is create entry portals that are unique instead of a monolithic design that goes from one end of the center to the other, Lipovac said. We want everything to look like it has a unique storefront. A portion of the center's makeover is already underway. Floor and Decor, a hard surface floor retailer with 128 warehouse format stores in 30 states, will anchor the Strip Center at 1422nd Street in January. The Atlanta, Georgia company was issued a building permit valued at $6.41 million to remodel nearly 79,000 square feet of space previously occupied by Gordman's, a discount store. The building permit is for interior and exterior renovations. It has not yet been announced when the remainder of the center, which includes Michael's Craft Store, Dollar Tree, and Firestone Auto Care Center, will be updated. Block Real Estate Services purchased the center in November 2019 for $15.9 million. Officials from Block Real Estate Services have been working with city officials on design plans for the 22-acre site. A sticking point is the height of a sign proposed to be located in the southeast corner of the property. Property owners have requested that the sign be 38 feet tall. West Des Moines Code allows for interstate signs to be no taller than 30 feet. There really isn't a lot of justification to have a sign as tall as what is being asked for, Lynn Tweet, the city's development services director, said during a recent meeting. Lipovac said the sign, quote, is attractive and something that's not going to be an eyesore. The West Town Center is right off Interstate 235, and we want to make sure people see what stores we have before passing by, end quote. City staff members are reviewing sizes of other signs within the city and along the interstate. Our next story, Cyber Threat Level Against Private Business Urgent. White House warns in National Memo by Kate Hayden. Des Moines Area Community College recently announced an investigation into a cybersecurity incident first identified on June 2nd. The investigation prompted DMACC's Information Technology Department to voluntarily shut down all online instruction and the telephone system beginning June 3rd. At the time of press, the investigation was still ongoing. Check businessrecord.com for the latest news updates. The voluntary system shutdown at DMACC occurred on the same day President Joe Biden's administration warned U.S. businesses to take urgent cybersecurity measures. In a memo, the White House warned that escalating cyber attacks are disrupting critical infrastructure in the nation, including the recent cyber attack on JBS USA, which owns meat processing plants in Marshalltown, Ottumwa, and Council Bluffs. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger wrote that the Biden administration is working with partners to, quote, disrupt and deter, end quote, attacks that deployed ransomware, reported by the New York Times and other national outlets. Biden signed an executive order on May 19th implementing new requirements to modernize cybersecurity defenses for the federal government and private sector industries. 
It's a call to arms, and there are things businesses can do, said Doug Jacobson, professor of electrical and computer engineering at Iowa State University. This call didn't give us something new to do. It may have made some companies think about the fact that they need to do more, he said. Although all sectors are vulnerable to cyber incidents, organizations in critical infrastructure sectors are under extra scrutiny after a ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline led to a six-day fuel supply shutdown, affecting nearly half of the East Coast. JBS was the first major volley at the ag sector. Iowa produces a lot of alternative energy, biodiesel and ethanol, Jacobson said. In case of both Colonial Pipeline and JBS, it affected their front-end systems, but that stopped them from being able to carry out their business, he said. Cybersecurity specialists are now emphasizing security practices that block third-party intruders from easily navigating an organization's internal network. Organizations that leave their internal networks open to navigate do so for convenience. It's easy for both approved network users and internal intruders to navigate. Segmenting one network into multiple smaller networks can disrupt an intruder's path through network computers in the organization. A good analogy is going into a giant warehouse with no walls, no guards, no cameras. I can steal pretty much anything I want once I'm inside the warehouse. Jacobson said. If my warehouse consisted of thousands of locked cages, it'd be much more difficult for attackers to get things. There's a trade-off there, but that's the sort of idea, making it difficult so that once intruders come in, they can't go from computer to computer. Having a plan of what you're going to do is critical, he said. Then our last article from the Insider Notebook. Two Lessons for Tomorrow's Challenges by Kate Hayden As they say, hindsight is 2020, and panelists at this year's virtual Iowa Technology Summit had the benefit of tough lessons from the year 2020 to share with Iowa companies tuned in for seminars on cybersecurity, leadership, business analytics, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. On a panel on diversity and inclusion, Delight Deloney and Kingsley Goborn put together a picture-perfect metaphor for true inclusion, based on one shared initially by Deloney, Field Services Director at SHRM. Diversity is inviting everyone to the dance, but inclusion is being asked to dance, Deloney said. We not only want to invite you to the dance and ask you to dance, but every once in a while we're going to play some of your music, and we're going to let that reflect your culture and your contributions to it. That gets us to the point of belonging, added Goborn, Senior Consultant of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Unity Point Health. Companies that want to ensure progress need to build in meaningful metrics to achieve individual goals in staff education, recruitment, and the retention of employees, said Denise Early, Executive Administrator at Principal Financial Group. Holding leaders accountable to those results as part of their goals is success that we've seen at Principal, 
and there's no substitute for education to get to the metrics that you want to have, Early said. Leaders are also accountable for the organization's approach to building supportive relationships with employees, said Bridger Moreland, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Manats Incorporated. To stay motivated and trust each other, Manats had to be direct in asking employees what they felt and what they needed during a year full of emotional challenges. Most of us probably utilize daily stand-ups to make sure work is progressing and we're aware of any impediments, he said. Two things that we wound up adding during that very long year of 2020 that helped us stay engaged with each other was checking on the welfare of each other. That simple question of, how are you doing? Only we asked it in a way that actually prompted something other than the typical American fine response, he said. There were a few very honest answers at weekly team meetings, and those answers brought us a new understanding that there were human beings on the other end of those Zoom calls. That might be a bit much for a daily stand-up, and you might be wondering how that fits into a weekly stand-up. It's a bit out of the ordinary, and we do want to limit meeting time. But in a virtual environment, it was necessary, he said. You are listening to the re reading of the Business Record for Friday, June 11, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Retail and Business section of the magazine, Restaurant revenue is returning, but workers remain scarce. The workers' shortage is causing restaurants to be open fewer hours, Iowa survey shows. By Kathy A. Bolton Chris Diebel was at Bubba, Southern Comfort's restaurant, helping seat guests when a person approached him about applying for a job. It was 5.45 p.m. on a Friday, and the downtown restaurant was busy. Diebel, though, stopped what he was doing, gave the man a job application, and showed him to a place at which to fill it out. Normally, we would have said, We can't sit down with you on a Friday night to do an interview, said Diebel, founding partner of Bubba, which is at 200 10th Street in downtown Des Moines. That Friday, we were more than happy to sit down with the gentleman and talk to him about his potential employment, Diebel said. While customers are returning to their pre-COVID dining out routines, restaurant workers who lost jobs during the pandemic have not returned. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, more than 2.4 million restaurant and food service industry jobs were lost in 2020 due to the pandemic. Now, restaurant and bar owners are struggling to attract workers back as hostesses, servers, cooks, dishwashers, and bussers. In March, 993,000 accommodation and food service jobs were available to be filled, the federal agency reported. Des Moines area restaurant owners and industry leaders say the shortage of workers is slowing the sector's recovery from the pandemic which caused the temporary closure of establishments and adherence to capacity restrictions once reopening was allowed. Now that restrictions have been fully lifted, some restaurant owners are eliminating some menu items. 
continuing to limit seating, and not opening during the week for some lunches and dinners because they don't have enough staff. The irony is that we've limped along on trickling revenue for the past year, and now that the revenue is back, we don't have people to work, said Diebel, who has closed Bubba all day on Mondays and for lunch on Tuesdays because of the worker shortage. For the past year, the world has told this industry that they're not essential, right? A lot of our workers went and found other work in essential industries. They're slow to return or they won't be returning at all, he said. A recent Iowa Restaurant Association survey showed that more than half of the state's eating establishments are operating at 20% or more below needed staffing levels, and more than one-third of restaurants are closed one or more days a week because of lack of staff. In addition, 52% of restaurants are making fewer tables and seats available to guests because of a shortage of workers, and 20% have dropped breakfast or lunch service, according to the survey, which was conducted in early May. In January 2020, two months before the pandemic forced the temporary closure of Iowa's restaurants and bars, 123,000 people worked in the state's accommodations and food services industry, according to Iowa Workforce Development data. In April 2021, as a sense of normalcy began to return, 105,500 people worked in the accommodation and food services industry, which include restaurants and bars. Several reasons exist as to why eating and dining establishments are having difficulty attracting workers, Iowa State University economist Dave Swenson said. Many food service employees worked part-time, and when restaurants and bars were temporarily closed in March 2020, the workers either didn't qualify for unemployment or their benefits were low, forcing them to find other employment, he said. Some workers may continue to be concerned about exposure to COVID and have decided not to return to restaurant work, Swenson said. Others have found higher paying jobs and are staying in them, he said. Places like Amazon are grabbing the good workers from the targets and other places, and people who may have had a part-time job at restaurant now can have a full-time job at Target, Swenson said. Those workers now are getting better pay and better benefits, he said. Joe McConville has operated numerous restaurants during the past 20 years, including Gusto Pizza. Rarely has he had problems finding people to work at the establishments, he said. In February, McConville and his partners opened The Breakfast Club at 212 East 3rd Street in Des Moines. Normally, when you open a restaurant, people hear about it and you have more than twice the number of applications that you need. This is the first time I've ever had to really be scraping to get a crew together. But we managed, he said. The Breakfast Club's operators were able to hire some new workers and move employees from their other establishments to put together work crews at the new restaurant. Hiring for Anna Dolce Ristorante, located at 5585 Mills Civic Parkway in West Des Moines, was more challenging. The new Italian cuisine restaurant was originally slated to open last fall. However, because of COVID-related reasons, McConville said he and the other owners decided to delay the opening until April. 
Then we had to delay the opening three more times because we didn't have enough staff, he said. One position, kitchen manager, was especially difficult to fill, McConville said. The job paid between fifty-five and $60,000 annually with benefits that included two weeks of paid time off. Twelve people applied for the position and McConville interviewed nine on the ten telephone and invited all nine in for face-to-face -face interviews. Not one of them showed up, he said. Not one person for a $60,000 a year job in a restaurant, he said. Eventually, McConville was able to hire the 35 to 40 people needed to open Anna Dolce. A manager was moved from another restaurant and McConville is currently Anna Dolce's chef. Some of Anna Dolce's staff has already left for other jobs, causing McConville and his partners to fill in even more, including waiting and bussing tables and preparing foods for meals. They also are working longer hours each day and not taking any time off, he said. Unfortunately, that's where we're at today, McConville said. Shortly after the pandemic began, the federal government began offering supplemental unemployment benefits to workers who suddenly found themselves out of work. Those benefits were extended until September 2021. McConville and others say the $300 a week federal supplement to unemployment benefits has kept some people from taking jobs that paid wages similar to or slightly higher than unemployment. Beginning June 13th, Iowa will no longer participate in the federal pandemic-related assistance programs that included the supplemental benefits. Ending participation in the federal program will help attract a deeper pool of applicants, restaurant owners and others said. However, it will continue to be difficult to compete with jobs that have higher starting salaries or are pandemic-proof, they said. Restaurant workers have skills that can be used in other industries, said Jessica Dunker, president and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association. We have a lot of restaurant operators tell us that they lost a manager to a customer service job, and those people are not coming back. Not only are they not coming back to the restaurant, they aren't coming back to the industry. They want jobs that are more pandemic-proof, she said. One way restaurant operators are attracting workers is by raising pay in an effort to compete with other industries. Amazon, which operates a fulfillment center in Bondurant and a delivery station in Grimes, announced in April that it is raising the hourly wages of more than 500,000 of its U.S. workers by between 50 cents and $3 an hour. The higher wages were expected to be in place by mid-June, the company said in its announcement. In 2018, Amazon hiked its minimum wage to $15 an hour for all of its U.S. employees. In May, in an effort to hire new workers, fast food giant McDonald's said it would raise pay for workers at its 650 company-owned U.S. stores. Hourly wages will increase an average of 10% in the coming months to an average of $13 an hour. By 2024, average wage wages are expected to rise to $15 an hour, the company said. Other national chains are raising pay as well. 
Chipotle is raising workers' pay to an average of $15 an hour, and Darden Restaurants, which owns Olive Garden, has said it will guarantee workers $12 an hour, including tips, by January 2023. McConville said he's paying hourly rates that are 50 to 75% higher than a year ago, in part because other sectors are paying $15 an hour or higher for starting wages. At Bubba, Southern Comforts, kitchen workers are now being paid $15 to $17 an hour, depending on the job and experience level, Diebel said. Before the pandemic, the jobs paid $13 to $15 an hour. Even with the higher pay, it's still hard to attract workers, he said. The result will be larger sections for servers to tend to and continued pairing of items from menus, Diebel said. An entire industry was all but turned off, he said. Turning it back on is going to take some time. We're asking anybody who will listen to us to show us a little grace and patience. Dunker of the Restaurant Association and others said restaurant operators need to begin looking at new ways to attract and keep workers. Teenagers are an important worker demographic for restaurants, Dunker said. Restaurants are getting creative. They're offering free food instead of discounted food. They're offering maximum flexibility and higher pay, she said. Attracting workers who are 18 and older requires more creativity, she said. We're competing with construction jobs and jobs that don't require night or weekend shifts. Before the pandemic, the association was helping hold training sessions for people who were re-entering the workforce after being incarcerated, Duncan said. We need to continue to look at the re-entry population and see what we can do to help them get jobs. In the recent association survey, members were asked whether they took advantage of the work opportunity tax credit available to employers who hire ex-felons, veterans, older adults, and others in specific target groups. Few had, Dunker said. I was shocked. A few were hiring from the reentry community, but nobody was using the tax credit. Restaurant owners also need to find new ways of enticing older adults to the industry, she said. If you are able to show them how much extra money they could make that would pay for a trip, they might be willing to come work for you. Jeff Bruning, president of Full Court Press, said restaurant and bar operators need to, quote, think outside the box, end quote, when it comes to attracting workers. Bruning said he plans to begin working with a job placement group that helps people not born in the U.S. find jobs. In addition, he said his company, which operates more than a dozen Des Moines area restaurants and bars, is ensuring permanent workers are working the number of hours they want each week, even if it means reducing the hours of college or high school students who will return to classes in the fall. If we have a good applicant walk through the door, we want to do what we can to keep them, he said. Everyone, not just restaurants, are searching for good workers. The demand is everywhere. Diebel, the founding partner of Bubba, said the person who came into the restaurant on a Friday night to fill out the job application was offered a job. 
He didn't want to work weekends, which is where we have our biggest staffing challenges, Diebel said. The applicant said he'd consider working every other weekend. We have an offer extended, but he has not started work yet. Now Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. More about Morrison. When historians look back on the 2020s, one thing they are sure to note is the transportation revolution. Those of us at ground level are largely oblivious, but ultimately today's shifting from gasoline to electric power could prove as significant as what happened a century ago when Henry Ford's Model T began rolling off the assembly line. The Model T was the first mass-produced vehicle with interchangeable parts, which made it affordable to the middle class and vastly expanded the market for cars and travel. Ford's willingness to pay a living wage, which allowed his workers to buy the vehicles they made, was also a factor. But the internal combustion engine was the death knell for battery-powered carriages, including an 1890 model created by Des Moines inventor William Morrison. Earlier this year, I wrote about Morrison's electric carriage, which is said to be the first self-powered electric vehicle in the world to carry passengers. After that column appeared, I learned more about Morrison and his inventions, which centered on improving the storage capacity of batteries. As I read more about Morrison, it occurred to me that his focus was on mass transportation, not the consumer market that Ford identified, captured, and exploited so well. Iowa author William H. Thompson set the scene in a chapter of his 1989 book, Transportation in Iowa, where he traces the history of Iowa's street railways and electric interurbans. The year, 1888, that Morrison's first electric carriage appeared on Des Moines streets was also the year electricity replaced horses as the preferred power source for inner city transportation in Iowa's capital city. Electricity offered several advantages. Thompson noted. It was faster. Electric trolleys could travel at up to 15 miles per hour, more than twice as fast as horse-drawn trolleys. It was less expensive. Electric motors did not consume huge quantities of feed, as did horses and mules. And it was cleaner, because electricity did not produce 10 pounds of excrement per day, as did each of the scores of animals used to pull commuter trolleys. The motors that powered Morrison's carriages also drove the city's electric trolleys. The future he envisioned must have been one in which fleets of electric trolleys powered by his batteries would become the primary mode of inner city travel throughout urban America. His vision was shared by others, including a group of Chicago businessmen who created the American Battery Company in 1889. Their interest was a godsend for Morrison, who was inundated with requests for information after articles about his achievement appeared in Scientific American, Western Electrician, and other periodicals. Quote, no less than 16,000 letters, end quote, 
from all over the country and Europe flooded into the city addressed to Morrison, the Des Moines Register reported in a 1907 article. Most sought information the inventor did not want to share. In fact, he resorted to tearing off the return mail stamps as a way of collecting value from his invention. His mail yielded two bushel baskets of postage stamps, according to the newspaper. The Chicago men reached an agreement that allowed them to use Morrison's battery patents. They also introduced a wider audience to his electric carriage by bringing one to the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and using it to transport fairgoers to various exhibits. Morrison had created similar excitement in Des Moines five years earlier when he debuted his electric carriage at the city's Senny Olmsted, Des Moines spelled backwards, parade. His new type of storage battery was a marvel. 24 batteries that were shaped roughly like a modern Tesla battery, weighing 32 pounds each, sat under the carriage seats. They could be charged overnight without being removed and provide power for up to 50 miles of travel at 20 miles per hour, according to Morrison. Unfortunately, the evolution of his storage battery was interrupted by the successes of Henry Ford and the other early automakers. Now, however, the process has come full circle with Ford's recent introduction of an electric Mustang and an electric version of its popular F-150 pickup truck. From the Innovation ups Update section of the business record, Cultivo Cohort completes inaugural Agritech Virtual Academy with Cultivation Corridor by Kate Hayden. Led by America's Cultivation Corridor, the Cultivo Global Ag Innovation Program opened Iowa's doors to six international agricultural startups already successfully operating in their home country's marketplace. They just needed help to explore the U.S. regulatory process, said Billy Hunt, Executive Director at America's Cultivation Corridor. The world sees Iowa differently, Hunt said. The world understands our leadership better than we understand our own leadership, so they love getting connected to us. After the COVID-19 pandemic's arrival, the Cultivo Global Ag Innovation Program transitioned immediately to a six-week course on the Virtual Academy Hub in early 2021 and had the chance to meet around 100 different agricultural contacts who already have relationships built with America's Cultivation Corridor, Hunt said. All participants, AgriDigital, BL Architect Bio Limited, Bondi Labs, Escavox, Safe Ag Systems, and Swan Systems will be invited back to Iowa in 2022 for a week-long meeting with other cohort members and Iowa business leaders. Below, Hunt answered a few questions about challenges cohort members tackled during the inaugural Cultivo program. What has been the biggest challenge for these cohort members? the awareness of how you navigate the U.S. system. One thing that they truly understand is you have to have trust with the farmer. 
There's a lot of questions. How do we build that relationship? How do we get there? The other piece is helping them understand and have a more intimate viewpoint of how you navigate the U.S. regulatory system and finance system. All of that, if you look at it from the outside in, it's very cumbersome, especially regulatory. But having people break it down, this is how the systems work, this is how you need to organize yourself if you're going to leverage venture capital here, breaking it down simply to them. Our system can be very intimidating. The key message there was, quote, you may be successful in Australia or the UK this way, but you may have to put on a different hat to enter the US marketplace, end quote. An irrigation company in Australia might be dealing directly with a farmer on something. But here we have opportunities to get involved with corporations and other ways to tie into that. All of us, when we try something and we don't know what we don't know, we have some hard learnings. It's been fun helping bring that down and try not to make it so overwhelming. How will you keep alumni engaged in Iowa industries? How do you gauge the program's effectiveness? In 2022, our plan is that at the Farm Progress Show, we'll bring them in and hopefully we can get them on stage and they can tell people about their products. One company is coming to Iowa in July and another one said, okay, I've got to be in Iowa by fall. We'll be doing a six month checkpoint afterwards. We're not taking any ownership in any of the startups, which is completely different than an accelerator or incubator. We're providing this as an education. For each of them, success will look a little bit different, but if there's still engagement in Iowa, I would consider that success. How does the state leverage all this international engagement outside of Cultivo's program? If this program really works for ag, it is, is it that hard to make it work for other industries? Probably not. The difference would be for finance. You might not get into the supply chain in the same way we did, but you still need to help them understand the value proposition chain in finance and insurance. We're probably 18 months ahead of any region copying us. We've got to keep an eye on top of our game and keep focused on the target versus wondering what everyone else is doing. Very few states can provide the diversity of connections that Iowa can, so that's what we have in our favor. From the business record calendar, the week ahead on Monday the 14th, the Great Futures Golf Tournament hosted by the Boys and Girls Club of Central Iowa at Des Moines Golf and Country Club. On Thursday the 17th, the Iowa FFA Foundation Golf Tournament at Vinker Golf Course in Ames. And Saturday, the 19th, the Raise Your Paw Auction, hosted by the Animal Rescue League of Iowa from 5 to 9.30 p.m. at the Iowa Events Center. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, June 11, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.